Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us at Bird Shit Podcast. We are super excited about this episode because it brings together our love of birds with another one of our loves, the wizarding world of Harry Potter. We did so much research for this podcast, and even though we did a lot of research for this podcast, one of the things that uh, we uncovered in our research was how much research J.K. Rowling did for Harry Potter. And I know, I know that probably doesn't surprise anybody, but actually, I was shocked to see how much research she really did. So, for instance, Nicholas Flamel, who is in the series the The Keeper of the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, He was actually a real person who lived in Paris in the 1400s, and even in real life, it was rumored that he owned a sorcerer's stone, which, by the way, is also a real thing. Uh, And then what's also crazy is that when they went to go, like, dig up his tomb and, like, look into it, his body was missing when they opened his tomb. That's crazy. It's super crazy. While we love the whole world of Harry Potter, we're going to focus in on some key bird species in this episode, particularly those of owls. So think of it more as the birding world of Harry Potter. So throughout ancient history, owls have been representative of malice or the night. In Greek mythology, owls traditionally represent the goddess Athena, who's the virgin goddess of wisdom. Roman mythology goddess version of Athena was named Minerva. Owls have often been referred to as the Owl of Athena or the Owl of Minerva, and they have been used as symbols of knowledge and wisdom throughout the Western world. In the Harry Potter series, owls are often conveyors of knowledge as they deliver and exchange parcels, and this was how we think of how vital owls are in helping Harry communicate with Sirius. It's also worth noting that Professor McGonagall's name is Minerva, and she's a badass professor, and her first name is basically Owl. J.K. Rowling elaborates on her love of owls on the Pottermore website even. So for those of you who don't know, Pottermore is the internet's living Harry Potter world and you should get sorted into one of your houses ASAP on the website. It's super fun. So she traces her love of owls to, and I quote, a cuddly owl toy that my mother made me when I was six or seven, which I adored. She also points out that owls have been associated with magic for a long time and are featured in many old depictions of wizards and witches. And many note that they are second only to cats as the most magical creature. To help us delve a little deeper into the birding world of Harry Potter, we wanted to bring in an expert. We found Laura Erickson after deciding to do an episode on the birds of Harry Potter and Laura's website, lauraerickson.com, has an entire section dedicated to the owls of Harry Potter. She even self-dubbed herself Professor Magana Gowl, which is the (laughs) coolest name ever. Oh, wow, we thought. This gal loves Harry Potter and birds as much as we do. So we decided to ask Laura if she wanted to be featured on our podcast. After a little bit more research, we quickly realized that Laura is a serious birding badass and far too overqualified to be on bird shit. But we sent her an email anyway. (laughs) And lucky for us, she decided to join us and she's going to talk to us a little bit about the birds of Harry Potter today. A little bit of a background on Laura. Laura has been watching birds since around 1953, but she must have had a higher activation energy than most birders. It took nearly two decades, several spark birds, and finally a pair of binoculars and a field guide to give her that quantum push she needed to get out there birding. As soon as she took her first official birding jaunt on March 2nd, 1975, she's never stopped. 
She's written more than a dozen books about birds, including National Geographic's Pocket Guide to the Birds of North America, the American Birding Association's Field Guide to Birds of Minnesota, and the one she considers most important, 101 Ways to Help Birds. She was science editor at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for a couple of years, and a couple of the books she's written were for them. She was the first woman, and shamefully, so far the last, to win the American Birding Association's highest honor, the Roger Tory Peterson Award. She's won several other awards for writing and bird conservation, but considers one of her greatest achievements to be selected as a celebrity judge for what was once a Duluth, Minnesota institution, the Geek Prom. She's also an actual authority on Nighthawk poop, which makes her the most qualified to talk on Birdship Podcast. Yeah, that poop connection is vital. That poop connection, we're all about that. Luckily for us and you, Laura was totally down to discuss the magical world of Harry Potter. Welcome to the show, Laura. I'm glad to be here. So let me hear both your voices and who is who. Sure. Uh, My name is Mo. I've probably talked too fast. My husband has even said that I don't have his favorite voice on Birdship Podcast, so I don't even... He's like, Sarah has a great voice, and I'm like, wow, thanks, so hopefully you don't have to listen to my voice very much. Oh, I like your voice. Oh, thanks. I like your voice, too. Well, thanks for that introduction, Mo. Um, I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Um, yeah, Mo, I don't, um, Mo and I have been college roommates and friends for a while now. More than 10 years. Yeah, it seems like a good amount of time. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Grand Rapids. Oh, Russ and I, my husband and I went to Michigan State. Oh. Oh, oh shoot. We both went to Michigan, so maybe we should just not pay attention to that. <laughs> well, moo you, you know. <laughs> uh, my, my brother and my dad went to Michigan State, so I'm the black sheep. Uh, yeah, and then I'm originally from Traverse City, Michigan. Good bird you up there. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that when I lived there. I'm regretting it now that I live in Chicago and I just look at sparrows all day. Oh, but you have piping plovers on Montrose Beach. Yes. How cool is that? I joined Chicago Audubon because of how well they've been dealing with all this right now. Dude, that's awesome. Because, I mean, as the generation that unfortunately seems to encourage music festivals it really this is a really bad situation well you know i'm in the woodstock generation that spawned it all (laughs) that's true and i've seen pictures of woodstock post that concert and it didn't look too great (laughs) (laughs) you guys left a real mess up there yep and we seem to be leaving messes all over the place (laughs) Well, we're all we're all doing that, so we're all doing our part. <laughs> that's right. That's right. In whatever ways, unfortunately, we are. <laughs> we would love to talk to you about Harry Potter because, uh, based on your website, it seems like you also have a, a very deep appreciation for Harry Potter. Is that right? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> How could I not? <laughs> How did you first get into Harry Potter? Like, what was sort of your entry into it? I was asked by our local Barnes & Noble first. Uh, I think it was the fourth book, maybe the third, when uh, they started releasing them at midnight and having a book party at bookstores to release it right at midnight, and they get 10 million children and adults flooding in to buy the book at midnight, and they decide to have a Harry Potter party. And so 
that meant I read all the books uh, because they I had my owl by then. You know, I started from the beginning, and I just totally fell in love with all the characters, and um, I identify most strongly with Hermione, some elements of Professor McGonagall, and what's-his-face from the Fantastic Beasts. Oh, Newt. Newt Newt. Scamander. Yeah. Scamander. Yeah. I always want to say Salamander, but it's (laughs) Scamander. Yeah. So uh, I think he's the one I identify with. And so that's why, well, there's a lot of reasons, but if I were to be sorted, when I first read the books, I, of course, wanted to be Gryffindor because Hermione was Gryffindor. And she's wise enough. I mean, she's brave enough to fit in with Gryffindor and she's a leader. She started that whole movement, you know, uh, with house elves and everything. And those are very Gryffindor things, but she could have been Ravenclaw cause she's so geeky and I am very geeky. I take great pride in my geekiness, but I still think that the house I would belong in would be Hufflepuff. And that's because of my affinity for other life forms other than humans, but also because as I'm not a follower, but I'm not a leader. I am just sort of go my own way like a chickadee. <laughs> and like I'm not the, the Gryffindor kind of brave leader type person. I'm just a Hufflepuff <laughs> Sarah and I, we both took the we both took the Pottermore quiz. Have you taken the Pottermore quiz? No. Okay, we'll get you hooked up with that. It's really great. Yeah, it is because it's very like abstract almost. Like it asks you like really tough questions that make you like just think about yourself, which is cool. But we both are Ravenclaws. Found that out before we found out that we were really into birds, even so. <laughs> that was cool. Well, Ravenclaws the only one that has a bird in the well Gryffindor because uh, Griffins are birds too. Slytherin is very snaky and I'm just not cold blooded enough. <laughs> I don't belong in, in there. <laughs> <laughs> Truth. My husband used to work with a girl who was like hardcore proud of her Slytherinness and I was kinda like, I don't know if you want to say that too loud. Like <laughs> I don't know. It takes all type smell. Thanks, JK Rowling, you proved us that. Well, yeah. Okay. You, yeah. I, I like, I like your explanation shows that you have a very deep understanding of not only yourself, but also Harry Potter, which is, makes you so qualified to be here on this, this episode. As Professor McGonagall. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the best name. Like how long did it take you to come up with that nickname? Um, instantaneous. That's not the kind of, that's the kind of thing that just pops into my brain when it should be, you know thinking about more important things. (laughs) Amazing. Well, with that all in mind, let's get into talking about some of the most prominent birds that show up in the Harry Potter series. We're going to start with everyone's probably most known bird, which is Hedwig. Hedwig is a snowy owl, and she is downright gorgeous. Uh, J.K. Rowling herself even said that snowy owls are, quote, the most beautiful owl of all. And we can't disagree with that. She's a beautiful bird. 
Hedwig is a close companion to Harry and given to him by Hagrid in book one as a birthday present. She also plays a vital role in Harry's life, often cited as his only friend during those lonely summers at the Dursleys. She provides really vital communication between Harry and the people that he cares about the most during the series, including Sirius, for a while. And she's just a great bird. And since we're discussing names in entomology this episode, J.K. Rowling found the name St. Hedwig in a book of medieval saints. There are two female saints named Hedwig. One of these saints, St. Hedwig of Andekes, is the patron saint of orphans, which is very fitting for Harry's upbringing. And there's also a Scandinavian name called Hedvig, meaning female warrior or battle, which is also very fitting for Hedwig. So Laura, can you give us some fun facts for what you know about snowy owls? Well, interestingly, Hedwig is a female character, but like Lassie, all the actors who portrayed Hedwig in the movies were males. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And there were actually several owls who each could do different things. So were used for different reasons. But there's two reasons why the actors were males. First of all, with owls in virtually every species of owl, the male is much smaller than the female. And Daniel Radcliffe was a little boy when he started doing the movies, and he had to hold Hedwig on his arm. And um, if you look really carefully in the movie scenes where he holds them, uh, you can't see that he's wearing a really strong gauntlet on his arm, a thick leather glove underneath his wizard robes. But the most gentle big owls are heavy and have to hang on to your arm kind of strong with powerful talons, and it could hurt a little boy. So he had to wear the gloves, but also having a male meant it would be a much lighter bird. Like, and they can vary by over a pound. Whoa, that's crazy. How much does a does a snowy owl typically weigh, like those ones that were used in the movies? Uh, between three and five pounds. A really heavy female would be up to five. And they probably would keep the male on the lighter side during the movie filming. So they would probably weigh around three pounds. He was probably like, what, like 11 or 12 in the first one? Yep, that's I think how old. But the other cool thing about the males is as they get older, they become pure white, where the females retain quite a few dark flecks in their feathers. And a starkly white bird looks way cooler against a wizard's robes. And do the females retain that color for more camouflage? Uh, Probably. Sarah's so smart. You just always see the beautiful colored birds and they're all males. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is up in the Arctic where snowy owls are nesting, there's quite a few shorebirds where the female is the colorful one, the large one, the one who defends the territory, and the male is the one who... Um, incubates the eggs and raises the babies. But that's because they have a very short breeding cycle up there. And the female has pretty much depleted her body's reserves after their very long migration, because many of the shorebirds that nest up on the tundra winter down in South America. 
and they go up to the tundra to breed and she lays her eggs and she's kind of wasted after that. So he has already been able to, um, you know, replenish his reserves. He hasn't had to squander much, you know, material from his body to, he hasn't had to lay eggs. So he raises the babies and she migrates out of there. But snowy owls, she's bigger because the ground is cold, um, though not as cold as it should be anymore. We're losing the permafrost. Um, And that's going to have bad implications for all these northern birds. But she's the one who is uh, the bigger one to defend the baby. She's right there all the time. But also she has to blend in with the lichens and other ground plants. And so those flecks almost definitely do help with camouflage. So Laura, you mentioned how light these birds are. And thinking back to the movies, Hedwig delivers Harry his Nimbus 2000 broom. Do you think a snowy owl could really carry a broom? Yeah, they could if they wanted to, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to ever convey a reason to carry a broom (laughs) to an owl in nature. I um, actually did some research to find out how much brooms weigh, and it's well within the weight limits that snowy owls can carry prey. The handle would be easy enough to wrap their feet around. They wouldn't feel comfortable carrying a broom side to side. They would carry it forward to back. And generally, what is the weight limit to what a snowy owl could carry? Is it like a certain amount times their weight? For most birds of prey, it's less than what their body weight is. But a great many birds of prey, their wings are large enough to manage both their body weight and the weight of their prey. Some of them are designed to carry pretty heavy things, but very often bald eagles and osprey grab fish in the water that they cannot pull out of the water because the fish weighs too much. And bald eagles weigh more like 12 pounds. So they're much, much heavier than any owls. So they have to kind of paddle with their wings to shore. And, you know, when they get it on land, they can eat it in place. But snowy owls can carry prey that weigh over a pound. Snowshoe hares probably weigh close to two pounds and they can carry them. Wow. It is, and you, you mentioned a little bit about the wings. What's, what's the typical wingspan for like a male or a female snowy owl? a little under five feet but when you consider that it's a bird who weighs not all that much that's a lot to carry yeah (laughs) yeah a really heavy female probably mainly ones that are captive can even weigh five or according to this six pounds but I've never heard of a wild one that weighed that much I mean I really don't think I could carry 35% of my body weight anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. Yeah. But it's also astonishing how big their wingspans are. So big. And they're so light, too, because they have hollow bones, correct? 
Right. And for snowy owls, a great deal of their bulk is actually really thick feathers for insulation on the tundra. Yeah, that makes sense. Thinking back to to Hedwig, our star snowy owl, how frustrating was the way Rawling, like, killed her off in the books? Like, that was so heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking for me to keep her in the cage. Yeah. That that just made no sense at all. And I'm really glad that they changed it for the movie. Yeah, because in the movie she flies out, right? Right. For the movie, he sets her free and tells her where to go. I think I would have used that warrior sense of the word Hedwig to make her come back at some point right when Voldemort has his wand pointed at Harry and grab his arm and she'll die, but she'll die in a heroic way. And I don't understand why that opportunity was not taken. I would have loved that so much I more. feel like she was in too big of a hurry to finish <laughs> and she didn't think it all through. She knew she had to start killing everybody off. She's like, "Well, fine. We'll start with we'll start with Edwig and we'll just <laughs> go from there." But yeah, it was yeah, awful. Yeah, but she could have killed her off in a heroic way as For well. sure. but, but to me it was such an affront that she was kept in that tiny cage. I had trouble finishing. Uh, What we did was, the first time I did one of the Harry Potter parties, it was at a Barnes & Noble. But after that, one of our local independent bookstores started having a Harry Potter party. And they did it at our local railroad museum where we had a black locomotive that they labeled the Hogwarts Express and the kids would go on that at midnight to get their book and I'd walk around starting around 7 30 until then with my owl talking about owls and and stuff and so I would get a free copy of the book at midnight I'd race home and my husband and I read all of the books out loud to each other taking turns with each chapter Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it was really fun. We've we we were we've been doing that since we first got married in 72. We read all the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings that way, too. But um, w- w- with Hedwig dying in the cage, I just felt so floored. I had trouble. That was where we stopped that night. It was just too horrible for me. Yeah, it's so sad. Well, she lived a good life, and she she definitely proved to all the other owls what it means to be a true majestic owl. Well, moving on from majestic to magical in his own way is Errol. Errol is the wayward, clumsy owl owned by the Weasley family. And in the movies, Errol is depicted as a great gray owl. Laura, are great gray owls really as awkward as they appear to be in this series? Nope, I have no idea why that seemed necessary. I mean, it was cute, but great gray owls are, they're ginormous. If you look at them, they look as big or even slightly bigger than a snowy owl, even though they weigh half as much or even a third as much. There is a record of a great gray owl starving that was picked up and brought to a rehabber and ended up surviving who weighed 
three quarters of a pound. Oh my gosh. It was so emaciated, but their feathers and spirit and not a whole lot else. They're designed to catch meadow voles. One species of rodent makes up like 90%, 80 or 90% of a great gray owl's lifetime diet. In the winter, those voles can be buried under 18 inches of snow and a great gray owl can hear them and plunge into the snow and grab them. And they need to be big, even though they're just eating this tiny vole, because they need to be able to plunge into the snow and pull out of the snow again. In the summertime, the voles make these tunnels through grasses. And if, uh, if you're lucky, you can sometimes see in fields where there's a meadow vole tunnel because it's above the ground. It's not like dug into the dirt. It's made out of grasses. And then that'll be in a meadow where the rest of the live grasses are tall. And the great gray owls can hear the voles in those tunnels and plunge in and grab them. And again, they have their great big wings to pull out. But when I rehabbed and had to pick up great gray owls, which was surprisingly often because I'm in Duluth, Minnesota, but when I would pick them up, I could hold them in my bare hands without any kind of protection. Their claws are very sharp and very long, but their toes, their you know, the grabbing part of their toes, the, the talons, were not powerful because they weren't designed to grab a whole big snowshoe hare or a whole big grouse or ptarmigan. They were just designed to catch little tiny voles. Wow, that is so specialized. Like, I never would have thought that. Yeah, they're very specialized. I do think in in looking at the great gray owl, it does seem like the sort of quintessential wizard bird. Like, it just looks so graceful and intelligent. Like, the way you kind of look at something that's mysterious and you're like, yes. Like, And I think J.K. Rowling even said that uh, she, when she was writing the book, she didn't really know what Errol was going to be, like, as a species. But then she... When they were filming, she saw the great gray owls and she's like, oh, yeah, like that's the bird that I've had in my head the whole time. But apparently she didn't know that they were super smart and not at all clumsy and awkward. Now, I was disappointed that they never showed Pigwidgeon in the movies because she called him a little owl. But unlike me, when I write about birds, if I'm speaking about a species, I capitalize so, uh, and there is a species of owl in Europe called the little owl, and I would have capitalized it if that's what I was referring to him as, but book publishers don't use that convention, and so even if she had meant him to be a little owl, we wouldn't know it from her just saying he was a little owl. The two possibilities for pigwidgeon were a little owl, which is one related to North America's burrowing owl. So they don't have little feather tufts sticking up. Or he could be one of the Scots owls of Europe. We used to think they were in the same genus as our own screech owls. They're in a different genus, but they have the little feather tufts. And that's what Mary Grandpierre drew 
in the book when she had an owl carrying a message as one of her illustrations. So that would imply Scott's owl. Yeah. And for those of people who are listening at home and aren't familiar with Pigwidgeon, you should probably read Harry Potter. But Pigwidgeon was Ron's first owl after Ron's actual pet, which was a rat, turned out to be a really gross person instead of an animal and so ron called him pig and he was often said in the books to be able to fit in the palm of their hand and he was often described as being exceedingly hyper loud bothersome very small and known to show off for people which fits well with his name because his name also means small or petty a little different than our dignified hedwig that we were talking about earlier would you say that that description sort of aligns with the scopes owl that that you were talking about? No, it more aligns with the little owl. I'm not very familiar with the European species, but our burrowing owl, which belongs to the same genus, is active by day too. And sometimes when I've watched them in the Great Plains, they nest in prairie dog towns. They seem a little bit active when they're running around. So that's the one I would have assumed, if not for the feather tufts in uh, the illustration in the book. Well, I guess we should think that that illustration exists because otherwise, you know, we would have been frustrated. Like, why didn't they just capitalize Little Owl? But <laughs> Well, they didn't capitalize any of the, uh, like, uh, they wouldn't have capitalized Snowy Owl either. You're right. I don't think they do, but they definitely call that out pretty clearly. Yeah. And they do refer to Pigwidgeon as a little owl, but it's in an ambiguous sentence. Well, ambiguity has never gotten us in trouble before, now has it? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and it's fun to not be certain. It's the kind of thing that, you know, doesn't really matter. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Speaking about uncertainty, we kind of want to work uh, work our way in talking about ravens. Oh. Yeah, because this is, this is sort of like an interesting point uh, that ends up making its way into the book. But a little bit of background on ravens. So ravens, historically, have often been associated with the occult. In fact, it is one of the first five birds in the alchemy of tongues, which is also called the transmutation of matter. And I got totally down the rabbit hole when I was researching this today, so like bear with me a little bit. But uh, if you start with the raven, the other birds in this alchemy of tongues sequence are the white swan, peacock, pelican, and phoenix. And each stage, or bird, represents a specific aspect of a deepening encounter of oneself with our inner being. So in this alchemic sequence, the raven is the first and darkest operation. This phage is called the putrefaction or the cleansing death of self-search. Basically what it means is a problem is reduced to its core as you give up, quote, all the petty things to which you have applied meaning, but which have no meaning. So in my particular case, this would include the stuffed animals that I sleep with every night and also probably avocados. I assign a lot of meaning to those things. Even though this process feels like dying, which is obviously a very pleasant thought, it's meant to be an act of using fire to sort of burn away the false world and revealing the true essence of ourselves, the universal soul, and the processes going on in our soul. So this was like 
this got really heavy when I started researching ravens in the alchemy world. But moving that into kind of more of the Harry Potter realm, we see that Rowling chooses to keep ravens mostly out of the picture. So the big mention we have is Rowena Ravenclaw, which she lent her name to the house she founded. However, the house mascot is not a raven, as one might expect, but rather an eagle. So it's kind of curious to see why Rowling didn't use a raven. Maybe it was all the death and soul and impurity stuff Mo just talked about. Some Vikings use a banner bearing a raven on them in honor of Odin, who we know is the Norse god of wisdom, poetry, death, divinitation, and magic. These banners were intended to bring the Vikings luck on their journey. Seems like some luck that the Rowena Ravenclaw could have used to find that missing diadem. (laughs) But still good news for Ravenclaws. Though as an eagle is a symbol of strength and immortality that is also linked to God, Zeus, and Odin. So Laura, we kind of to kind of get any speculation from you as to why these creatures who are often associated with Halloween, the magical, weren't prominently featured in Harry Potter. I am not sure, and uh, it surprised me, especially when I realized Ravenclaw was one of the houses, that there wasn't going to be anything about ravens. It's funny because we assign all these kind of significances to owls that probably are not at all related to genuinely knowing owls, you know, spending a lot of time with them in nature. But ravens really do live up to a lot of the really coolest elements of our mythology of them. One time I was bird watching. I was living with my, staying with my in-laws for a couple of weeks when I was pregnant and they lived in the country and I took a walk every day and one day I got back to their house and my watch was missing my wristwatch which I just loved it had this leather um, wristband with flowers painted on it and I just loved it and um, I was really bummed out well the next day I followed my tracks not searching for the watch because I walk on these country roads and I figured it had probably been smashed by a car by then and While I was walking two or three miles from my in-laws, all of a sudden a raven called and I looked up and he had my watch. (laughs) Holy cow! I said, well, I guess it went to a good, (laughs) somebody would appreciate it. Oh my gosh. threw lower and dropped it right in front of me. (gasps) And it's not like I knew that raven. It's not like I'd been conversing with them or anything but I was walking on its territory and it must have associated me with the watch and it was the most genuinely magical experience I've ever had with a raven I mean it was amazing there's one of the stories about Noah from the Old Testament is before he sent the dove out he sent out a raven to look to see if that you know the land had cleared anywhere, and the raven just took off. Because <laughs> he, <wasn't gonna, laughs> he was smart. Why should I tell you? <laughs> he was like, I've been on this boat for too long. I'm getting out of here. 
But so to me, ravens so live up to all the the cool elements of our mythology about them that I was disappointed that they didn't figure in the books. But I figured, you know, J.K. Rowling did so much deep research. I mean, all the her character names, so much that, she, you know, was based on really deep research. But she's not a bird watcher. So, you know, she knows all these things from one kind of book and experience. But at least that's all I can figure why yeah. she didn't. Yeah. If you if you were to choose how to add Ravens into the book series, I know it's a heavy question, but let's pretend like we're all writing Harry Potter right now. Is there an instance where you think they might fit in well or like a cool way that might they might have been able to be used? I would much prefer that Hermione have a raven than Crookshank. That would have been great. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I thought, you know, she's smart. She's cool. She could have a raven even though she was in Gryffindor. <laughs> we'll let her have that. So I think the final bird we kind of want to talk about, which is not a real bird, is we wanted to give a shout out to Dumbledore's phoenix. So a little background on phoenixes. In Greek mythology, they're a long-lived bird that cyclically regenerates or is otherwise known to be born again. They're associated with the sun, and a phoenix obtains a new life by arising from the ashes of its predecessor. According to some sources, the phoenix dies in a show of flames and combustions, although there are other sources that claim that the legendary bird dies and simply decomposes before being born again. So this bird probably makes the second most appearances beside Hedwig and proves to be crucial in the book, assisting Harry and Dumbledore several times. Laura, I mean, I'm just curious, like, know, now that you know, you know so much about birds, but do you know anything about, like, mythical birds? Like, is there, like, a reason why you think uh, the phoenix played such a big role, aside from it just being about magic? But do you think there's something that maybe alluded to that, that, that J.K. Rowling decided she wanted to use the phoenix so prominently? Well, we have a little boy who's an orphan. His parents died. And that yearning for regeneration is really a primal one. That's why phoenixes also are one of the levels in the levels of alchemy. Um, we yearn for that. I have never thought about that before. And, like, my mind is so blown <laughs> that I'm, like, picking up the pieces of it on the ground. Like, that is... That is, like, so insightful that I never even made that connection between Harry and his parents and the Phoenix. Oh, my gosh. I didn't either. Nope. This is why we need you, Laura. (laughs) That is so, yeah, okay. I don't even know what else to say because that was, like, that's almost, like, the best summary that anyone could have given between why birds and Harry Potter go so well together. Well, that's all I know about Phoenixes is that... (laughs) We yearn for things to come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. That is so true. Oh, man. Uh, wow. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, I do think it's cool that, like, I, I did some research on all the birds in Harry Potter, and there are so many birds that I can't tell if J.K. Rowling made up or if she adapted from other species and just brought them, like, had magic, magical elements. But I do think it's cool that she used such an iconic mythical bird 
in the series. Uh, I know she does that with like the Sphinx as well. And um, the Basilisk is actually based on like a real Mm -hmm. mythical creature too. So I think it's cool that she sometimes uses her imagination to create things that are new and exciting to people that are reading the books. But she also has this sort of um, research back part of the elements that kind of keep it feeling more real, I guess. Yeah, her books were just such a magical blend of so much. I used to be a teacher, and it frustrated me when they started making recommendations about what books children should read at each level because they used so many words of so many syllables in so many sentences. It was this very mathematical thing that had to do with counting syllables in words and counting the words per sentence and counting the sentences per paragraph when the Harry Potter books didn't need any of those things and kids devoured them for the same reason adults did, that the books were so rich. Yeah, absolutely. She was writing about something people wanted to read and it was like a no-brainer but she put so much into those books um, so much heart and brain and then the birds were like the icing on the cake for me (laughs) I think they were for us too (laughs) just as kind of a, a last question here for you about this why do you think the choice was made to use owls for the parcel service in Harry Potter instead of the classic carrier pigeon? Do you have any insights into that? Uh, the pigeons that carried messages were a really important part of British history more than American history. They had a, um, a pigeons carrying messages for them far longer than we did. We had the Army Corps, uh, Army Signal Corps was the ones in charge of using pigeons in World War One and World War Two. Uh, there's some countries, France, I think, still keeps a pigeon company just in case all their communications would be knocked out. Pigeons can still carry the message. But because it was so much a part of British history, she probably grew up knowing exactly how little the tubes are that carry messages for pigeons. They, they're these little things that get hooked onto their legs. You can't carry a howler. Yeah. Yeah, you certainly can't carry a howler. (laughs) So I think she just wanted something nobody thought of before. And talons, the feet that grasp and carry things, are ideal for, you know, carrying a letter or a howler or a Nimbus 2000. So I think it was unique. It was, you know, first of its kind for sure. And it just gave Hedwig an added importance to Harry, uh, a practical importance as well as being his, you know, beloved friend. Very good points. Yeah, I didn't even think about that whole British history part. And you're right, I guess it's just if you've just kind of been raised knowing something, you're like, well, that's kind of boring. Like, what? what's like a better way to present that? And yeah, I will seem like a good fit for it in that way. Yeah, there's no pigeon who could carry it in this 2000, that's for sure. That is true. We can all agree on that fact. Well, great. Well, is there anything else you want to add at all about Harry Potter or the the birds of Harry Potter? Not that I can think of. You guys really have 
researched it well. Well, thank you. And thanks for joining us to talk about birds and the wonderful world of Harry Potter birds. All I know how to do is blather about birds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll take that any day. We loved Point Pele so much, we decided to do an East Coast trip through Canada. We will be in Toronto on Thursday, August 15th, and then driving to Montreal in the afternoon on August 16th with our final destination of Moe's new hometown, Portland, Maine. We would love to get into some bird ship while we're driving through Canada. If you have any suggestions for great spots to go birding, send us an email at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. Also, we really want to meet up with you, our awesome listeners in Canada, to go bird watching, or let's be honest, maybe grab a good beer. Stay tuned to our Twitter, at HelloBirdShit, and our Instagram, at BirdShitPodcast, as our trip approaches so we can tell you where to meet us. Let's do this, BirdShit! Shit.